Section 37 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Antonia by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter 8, Part 5. When everybody had arrived, Monsieur Antoine assumed a modest and good-humoured air, a rare but certain symptom of inward triumph unmingled with suspicion. He placed everybody round a large table, in the centre of which an object of considerable height was concealed under a great bell of white paper. Then he took from his pocket a treatise in manuscript, luckily very short, but which it was difficult to listen to without laughing. For in it, French and Latin were murdered with the utmost coolness. The manuscript of his own composition, which began with Messrs. et Madames, and which treated of the importation and cultivation of the most beautiful lilies known, concluded thus, Having had what I considered the advantage of buying, raising, and bringing to perfect bloom the only specimens in France of a lily which exceeds in size, in fragrance, and in splendor all varieties above mentioned, I called the attention of the honorable company to my individual, and invite them to give it a name. Having concluded the reading of his speech, Monsieur Antoine deftly raised, with the end of a reed, the white paper covering, and Julian uttered a cry of surprise when he saw the Antonia Thierry perfectly fresh and blooming in all its glory. He believed at first that there had been some trickery, that it was a perfect artificial imitation, but the plant, when the covering was removed, gave forth a perfume which recalled to his mind, and Julie's as well, the first day of their passion, and when the clamor due to sincere or courteous admiration had made the circuit of the table, Monsieur Antoine added, Messrs. Les Savants, you must know that this plant put forth two shoots, the first one late in May, a very pretty specimen, accidentally broken, and preserved in an herbarium close by, the second in August, twice as large and full as the other. It blossomed, as you see, the tenth day of said month. Christen, christen, cried Madame d'Ancourt. I would like to stand godmother to that lovely lily, but I fancy that another. She glanced at Julie with a mixture of irony and goodwill. The professors paid no heed, but unanimously proclaimed the name of Antonia Thierry. You are very kind, Messrs, said Monsieur Antoine, flushing with pleasure and stammering with emotion. But I have a slight modification to suggest to you. It is no more than fair that this plant should bear my name, but I should like to prefix the name of a person who, of a lady who, in short, I ask to have it called the Julia Antonia Thierry. That's a little long, said Marcel. But then the plant is so tall. Julia Antonia Thierry it is, replied the professors artlessly. Ah, at last, bravo, 
So it's decided, cried the Baron de Court, pointing to Julie and making the sign indicating union with her plump white hands. Every eye turned upon Julie, who blushed, and thereby recovered all the splendor of her beauty. Excuse me, Madame la Baron, said Uncle Antoine with a sly expression. I tricked you by going to your house to beg you to make an offer of marriage to Madame d'Estrel in my behalf. I wanted to see what you would say, and you didn't say no. On the contrary, you advised that young lady to accept me. That was what led me to propose to her the man I had in view for her. For I said to myself, if an old fellow like me is eligible because of his money, my nephew, who is young and will have a good share of my money, may be accepted. That is how it happens, mesdames and messieurs, that, with the consent of Madame d'Estrel, I concluded today the business troubles we have had by a marriage between her and my nephew Julian Thierry, whom I do myself the honor to present to you. Pshaw, the young painter, cried Madame d'Ancourt, irritated, she knew not why, by Julian's beauty and impassioned manner. A painter, said the bewildered Madame de Morge. Ah, my dear, so it was true after all, was it? Yes, my friends, it was true, replied Julie boldly. We loved each other before we knew that Monsieur Antoine would rescue us from the poverty that threatened us both. I declare that Monsieur Antoine is a great man and a true philosopher, cried Abbe de Neves. Suppose we adjourn to the table. Let us go to dinner, mesdames and messieurs, said Monsieur Antoine, offering Julie his hand. You will say it is a misalliance. But three millions for each of my nephews, that helps to rub the dirt off a family. And my grand-nephews will have money to purchase titles with. This last argument changed the blame of Julie's friends into somewhat reluctant congratulations. She had to resign herself to the necessity of appearing to sacrifice vainglory to wealth. But what did it matter to her after all? Julian knew what to think. Julie, who was still in mourning for her father-in-law, went to Severus to pass the rest of the summer. Severus is a Norman oasis within two leagues of Paris. The apple trees give it a rural savor, and the hills, covered with lovely rustic gardens, were at that time quite as charming and more unconventional than today. I must not, however, speak slightingly of the lovely villas of Severus as it now is, with their magnificent shade trees and the picturesque inequalities of the region through which the river boldly cuts its way. The railroad has not altogether dispelled the poesy of that wooded spot, and it is not unpleasant to be able to reach, in a quarter of an hour, the grass-grown paths and fields sloping to the water's edge. From the top of the hill one can distinguish Paris, an imposing silhouette against the blue sky through the clumps of trees in the foreground. Three steps away in the bottom of the ravine, one can lose sight of the great city, turn away from the two white villas, and lose oneself in the genuine country, still unspoiled, although a bit rococo, and always lovely with flowers.
There, Julie recovered her health, which was seriously impaired for some time. And before, as after their marriage, Julian was all in all to her, as she was all in all to him. What society said and thought of their union, they did not care to know. Their real friends sufficed for them, and Madame Thierry was the happiest of mothers. Their happiness was disturbed, it is true, by the political tempests, the approach of which Julian had watched with no idea that they would be so swift and so radical. Having a clear conscience and a generous heart, he made himself very useful in his neighborhood by the pains which he took to relieve want and to prevent it as far as he could from urging its victims on to deplorable acts of violence. For a long time he exerted great influence over the workmen in the factory at Severus and in the Faubourg, which surrounded the Hotel d'Estrelle. On some days he was well-nigh overwhelmed, but nothing could induce him to do anything which his conscience disapproved, and he was threatened in his turn and was very near being suspected. The firmness with which he faced suspicion, the generous personal sacrifices he had made, the confidence he displayed in the midst of danger saved him. Julie was as brave as he. The timid woman was transformed. She felt that her soul had developed and been tempered anew in its fusion, brought about by love, with a fearless and upright soul. Her heart was torn, doubtless, when several of her old friends were struck down by the revolution, despite all Julian's efforts to rescue them. She succeeded in saving some of them by judicious advice and prudent measures. She concealed two in her own house, but she was unable to save the Baron d'Ancourt, who ruined herself by her excessive fright and underwent a most vigorous captivity. The unfortunate Marquise d'Estrelle could not restrain her rage when the forced loans encroached on her savings. She died on the scaffold. The Duke de Quesnoy's emigrated. Abbe de Nivris prudently turned Jacobin. After the terror, the suppression of the privilege attached to the royal establishments, having enabled Julian to gratify a wish he had often formed, he labored to disseminate the industrial and artistic improvements which he had had leisure to study and to experiment upon at Severus. He earned no money by it, but that was not his object. In fact, he lost something, but he found therein the means of ameliorating the lives of many unfortunates. He was not rich, and his wife was overjoyed to see him continue his artistic work and devote himself lovingly to the education of his children. Marcel purchased a cottage near theirs at Severus, and the two families passed together all the holidays and days of rest which the worthy solicitor was able to steal from his business. He made a little fortune by honorable methods, and Julian was able to manage his own competence with the prudence his father had lacked. Well for him that it was so, for the revolutionary government confiscated Monsieur Antoine's property. The old man had continued to live alone, feeling no desire for family life, as gracious as it was in his power to be to the debtors who gratitude flattered his pride. 
but unwilling to enter into any social relations which would have upset his habits. He had promised Marcel to think no more about marriage, and he kept his word. But he was attacked by another mania. He became, in politics, a reviler of all the events of the revolution, whatever they might be. Everybody was mad, blundering, stupid. The king was too weak, the people too gentle, the guillotine too lazy and too greedy by turns. And then, as that succession of tragedies disturbed his brain, which was more mad than cruel, he changed his opinions and passed from the most unbridled sansculatism to the most laughable dandyism. All this was quite harmless, for he did not intrigue for place, but contented himself with breaking out in words in his rare incursions into society. But he was denounced by workmen whom he had maltreated, and came near paying with his head for his riotous indulgence in obscure eloquence. Julie and Marcel, by tireless persistence, succeeded in inducing him to leave the Hotel de Melcy, where he defied the storm every day. They kept him out of sight at Severus, where he made them very unhappy by his evil humor, and compromised them more than once by his imprudent acts. His property was under sequestration, and he recovered only a few shreds. He endured that terrible blow with much philosophy. He was one of those pilots who curse during the tempest, but keep cool when it is a question of salvage. He refused to take back any part of what Julian had received from him, as his garden had not been injured and he recovered it almost intact. He resumed his former habits and recovered comparative good humor. He lived there until 1802, still active and robust. One day they found him sitting perfectly still on a bench in the sunshine, his watering pot half full beside him, and on his knees an undecipherable manuscript, the last lucubration of his worn-out brain. He had died without warning. The night before he had said to Marcel, Never fear, you shall have the millions you expected to inherit from me. Let me live only about ten years, and I shall make a larger fortune than I ever had. I have a scheme for a constitution which will save France from ruin. After that, I will think a little of myself and go back to my exporting business. End of Section 37 End of Antonia by George Sand Translated by George Burnham Ives